Let's turn in the scriptures to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to give just a few minutes to studying and applying a few precious lines about the power of Jesus' resurrection. It was a few weeks ago that we studied through this first chapter and we surveyed these words, but today we return to them, focus on them, and dig deeper into them. I'm going to read 1 Peter 1, verses 3, 4, and 5. These are the words of Jesus' lead disciple. Peter wrote this letter in the mid-60s AD, so about 30 years after the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. And he wrote them to suffering Christians who were suffering because of their commitment to Jesus. Peter writes in verse 3 of chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. A few weeks ago, I pointed out how Peter's thinking in this section is Trinitarian. The verses we just read focus on God the Father, what he's done by his great mercy. The next few verses are going to focus on God the Son. Then verses 10 to 12 are going to focus on God the Spirit. That's not even to mention that the verse before the one we started reading at, verse 2, actually in one verse mentions all three, God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son. It is remarkable that Peter, a first century Jew, who would have confessed all through his life, the Lord, the Lord our God is one, he came to this unshakable conviction that God is triune. He is three in one. And especially he came to this conviction that the man, Jesus of Nazareth, with whom he lived, was God the Son. And if you wonder, now, is this letter authentic? Is this letter really from Peter? Was it really penned in the first century? I'd point you to some evidence. First of all, evidence within the letter. Verse 1, the writer claims to be Peter, who was sent by Jesus. The first verse of chapter 5, he claims to be an eyewitness of the sufferings of Jesus. There's also external evidence. That means evidence outside the book. There's not a shred of evidence that anyone in the first or second centuries doubted that Peter was the genuine author of this book. Furthermore, within a few decades, there were pastors quoting this first letter of Peter as the word of God. Most famously, Polycarp, in his letter to the Philippians, this happened around 112 AD, quotes Peter, the first letter of Peter, four times as the word of God. This was accepted, apparently, immediately, very quickly, as being authentically Peter's. And this was accepted as the word of God through an authoritative apostle. There's strong reason to be convinced that what we're reading here is authentic. We're reading a document penned by a man who lived for three years with Jesus, who became convinced that he was God the Son, 
and he witnessed with his own eyes the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus from the dead. In these precious words that we're studying this morning, Peter explains that through the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus the Messiah, through the resurrection of Jesus the Messiah from the dead, everyone who follows him has a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus the Messiah from the dead, everyone who follows him has a living hope. Peter stresses that we should bless God because of what he's done for us, note the words in verse 3, through the resurrection. I want to explore three facets of that. Through the resurrection. How has God done this through the resurrection? What has he done? The first point is simply this. We should praise God that his chosen king for earth is alive. We should praise God that his chosen king for earth is alive. His Messiah is risen from the dead. I want to notice the exact words of that phrase, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Christ, as we often point out, is not Jesus' last name. Christ is his title. Jesus is the Christ. That means the Messiah, the chosen king. Jesus is God's chosen king to rule on earth. In other words, God the Father has chosen God the Son, who's referred to in the first part of verse 3 as our Lord Jesus the Christ. He's chosen his Son to rule forever on earth. And this is where our hope begins, in the choice of God. He chose his son to be glorified at the climax of world history. God, our Father, he didn't determine that world history would end in universal judgment. That all of creation would be submerged under the flood and no one would be left alive. That would have been just for God to do. But no, as as verse 3 says, in great mercy, God chose to set Jesus as king on earth. He chose his son to reign forever as the Messiah over people whom he would save. That's great mercy. That's boundless mercy that God chose human history to end like this. The only way that you can experience this rescue as verse 5 describes it, this salvation that will be revealed at the coming of Jesus. The only way that you will experience this rescue is if you personally turn from being your own authority and you commit your life to King Jesus. If you submit your life to him, if you call out to him and beg his forgiveness. There's a little booklet on the resurrection. I'm not even sure if it's still in print anymore. It was written in the in the 1980s by an Oxford grad who became a lawyer in, in England. His name is Val Grieve. The book is entitled, Your Verdict on the Empty Tomb. At the beginning of the book, Val tells a little bit of his story. He says, it was while I was at Oxford that a fellow student started telling me about his faith. He was different from anyone I had ever met before. To him, God was real. God was relevant. 
I can well remember having many arguments and discussions with him. As an atheist and a budding lawyer, I was quite convinced that I'd soon refute his arguments about Christianity. But this was not the case. Instead, for the first time in my life, I found myself thinking about the meaning of life and the evidence for the Christian faith. As I argued furiously with my Christian friend, I had a horrible suspicion at times that, after all, he was right and Christianity was true. This made me argue against Christianity more than ever. He says, but one Easter Sunday, everything changed. He explains what happened. He says, I awoke in the morning of that day with no thoughts of Christ at all in my mind. I was so full of this world, as full of this world as the next person. And then suddenly the thought came to me that on Easter Sunday, Jesus rose from the dead. He was alive. And I suddenly knelt down and I talked to Christ. Yes, I talked to Christ. I suddenly knew he was living, that he was near me. He wanted to enter my life. I talked to him. I said, come into my life, Lord Jesus. And a marvelous joy filled my life. He writes several decades later, I can now look back on what happened then and I can say from personal experience that conversion to Christianity is real. It lasts. Over the years, I've been asked many times how the change from being an atheist to being a Christian took place. And I always reply by saying that there are two reasons for my being a Christian. Firstly, I found that Christianity is true. Secondly, I found it works in my life. Many people are surprised when I claim that Christianity is true. Somehow they have the idea that to become a Christian is to commit intellectual suicide. It reminds me of the teenager's definition of faith as believing what you know isn't true. My experience is the exact opposite of this. One of the main reasons I became a Christian is not because I stopped thinking, but because I started thinking. He goes on to explain the evidence that really demands a verdict. That's not his title, but he wants people to make their own verdict on the empty tomb. He goes on to say, as I argued with my Christian friend, I came to see for the first time that there was much evidence in favor of Christianity. And he says, ever since I came to be convinced of the evidence, I've carefully examined it. I've examined the evidence for the physical return from the dead of Jesus Christ. And I maintain not only that the resurrection stands up to examination, but it's the most relevant thing in the world today. Have you ever acknowledged Jesus of Nazareth to be the Messiah, to be God the Son, to be the Lord? Can you say, you are my Lord Jesus Christ? Have you committed your life to him? If you have never acknowledged him as your Lord, then I urge you, call on him today. may not be as dramatic as vows, where you fall on your knees, and in a moment you're just overwhelmed with the truth of the evidence you've been presented. It may not be like that. But would you right now consider the truth? Consider the reality? Would you call on Jesus to save you? When Peter writes, through the resurrection we have living hope, he means most basically that God has a chosen king for this earth and he raised him from the dead. Second facet of truth. Praise God. 
that you're not the person you used to be, that you're born again, your life's been changed by being united with Jesus' resurrection. Praise God that you're not the person you used to be. If any person repents, that means you basically do a 180 turn in your life, and you stop being your own authority, and instead you believe in Jesus, you commit your life to him, the crucified and risen king, God the Spirit will unite your spirit with what Jesus did at the cross and in the resurrection. You will be spiritually united with Jesus. Peter puts it actually in the next chapter. If you look at 2.24, one of the verses we studied Friday night, God makes us die to our sin and live to righteousness. We die to the rebellious, disobedient person we used to be, And God reorients our lives. He points us in a new direction so that we say, the direction of my life is submission to Jesus. Now again, this is great mercy. Not only that God would choose not to end world history and judgment, but instead under the rule of his authoritative king, but that God would make you personally a part of it and he would change your life. That not only would he change creation one day by Jesus, but he would change you right now to be the first fruits of that new creation. What mercy. Wow. According to Paul, Christians, those who are followers of Jesus, are born again. We are not the people we used to be. And in changing us, in reordering our lives so that Jesus is first, The Lord actually works the the greatest change that could ever happen in our lives. It is the dominant facet of our identity. You can think of other significant changes that happen in your life. You lose a parent. You lose a limb. Do you realize that the dominant identity marker of your life is that you're now oriented toward Jesus, submitting to Jesus, obeying Jesus, and every other identity marker is prioritized underneath that. Jesus is alive. Jesus has changed me. I'm not the person I used to be. I belong to him. It's the most dominant feature of our identity. Third facet of truth in these few precious verses Praise God that you have a living hope. That your confidence in your eternal inheritance cannot be extinguished. Praise God that you have a living hope. That your confidence in your eternal inheritance cannot be extinguished. Peter says that we've been born again to a living hope. A living hope is a hope that's alive. It's a hope that has a heartbeat. It's a hope that's persistent. It's a hope that endures. It can't be extinguished. In fact, it'll keep living into eternity. It can't die. Everyone who's been given new life in Jesus has been filled with this living, indomitable hope. The hope is that God has an inheritance he's going to give us. This inheritance, Peter describes in verse 4, it's the inheritance that Jesus is going to come and establish his kingdom and we're going to be part of it. That's a hope that can't be diminished 
It can't be destroyed. It can't be marred in any way. Nothing can take that hope away from us. The hope involves perfect government under Jesus' rule, flourishing culture, an unselfish population of people who've been made right by Jesus, perfect health, like Jesus' own glorified body, wondrous reunion, lavish feast. Jesus is at the center of it all. And Peter teaches in verse 5 that not only is this inheritance kept for us, but verse 5 says we are kept for it. This is where we're ending. Look at verse 5. Peter teaches that God himself is protecting us for our inheritance. It's like we're children in protective custody until we come of age and can actually be given our inheritance. That's why our hope is alive, active, ongoing, ever-renewing, never-dying. Because it's the hope that God's given to us. It's the hope that God's caused us to be born again to. And it's the hope that God is guarding us for. So I conclude very simply here by pointing to two words. Middle of verse 5, through faith. God guards us for our hope through faith. He's guarding us through faith for the salvation ready to be revealed. This rescue from sin and death. God is guarding us for it through faith. So Christian, if you're wondering, how do I actually respond? How does this message actually change my life? I'd say it's really, really, really simple. Keep believing. Through faith, you're guarded for this hope. Keep trusting God. Let me contrast it. God is not protecting you for your inheritance apart from faith. It's not like any Christian in this room can say, you know what, it doesn't really matter whether or not I keep believing, whether or not I believe, that's not really a big deal. No. You must keep believing. God is protecting you through faith. All you need to do is keep the faith. If your faith is wavering this morning, I'd encourage you to study the resurrection. Study it in the scriptures, both the Old Testament and the New. Study it with the church. Study it by reading an apologetics book or two. Study church history and see how the resurrection power of Jesus has not been able to be stopped through centuries. If your faith is wavering, study the resurrection. The word of God will grow your faith. If your faith is being beaten down through trial after trial that you're experiencing, then spend a lot of time studying your inheritance. Read what God has said to you about the eternal kingdom. Soak in the truth of it. Until you say, this is real. As real as I'm real, this is real. Study the scriptures on heaven. Read solid books on heaven. Sing great songs about heaven. 
Be kind of like one of those deployed soldiers that you watch in movies. And when he would come back to the barracks at night, or when he would fall into his foxhole at night, he would reach into his pocket, and he would pull out that picture of the girl who's waiting for him back home. That's what Christians do with the Bible's depictions of heaven. We say, that's home. That's rest after war. That's the salvation that's ready to be revealed. That's my hope. That's my inheritance. It can't be taken away. In one sense, I hope you see, the primary application of today's message is believe, which kind of means do nothing. Trust what God has done for you. Rest in what God has done for you. Simply keep believing that he raised Jesus from the dead and choose to praise the God of creation that he is the God of salvation and the God of the resurrection. Trust God and praise him for his merciful plan for world history. Praise him for his mercy to you personally. Praise him that you're not the person you used to be. Praise him that you have a living hope that can't be extinguished. All because, all assured to us, because the Messiah is alive from the dead. Let's pray. Oh God, I pray that we would be strengthened through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead to keep believing you, God who's in control of world history. Oh Lord, I pray that you would strengthen our hope no matter how hard our trials are today. Because Jesus lives, we can face tomorrow. Oh God, I pray that we would not just sing it, we'd believe it. I pray that you would extend the gospel to those here today who are not yet Christians. May they personally embrace it for themselves on this Easter Sunday morning. For Jesus' glory and our good, I pray. Amen.